You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you, dear Lord. Christmas is a time of celebrating the love of Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so, Lord, this time of the year is the celebration of the greatest gift that has, been ever, that has ever been given to man, and that is the gift of your Son, Jesus. And, Lord, we pray, dear Lord, that for every person in this room that Jesus lives in their hearts, that they know what it is to have the Holy Spirit abiding within their lives, giving direction, giving counsel, giving wisdom, giving the guidance that only God's Holy Spirit can give. And Lord, we pray, dear Lord, even now as we open up our hearts to your word, we ask you, dear Lord, to make them sensitive, plow up those deep, hardened areas of our heart that sometimes, dear Lord, are not receptive to a spiritual truth. Make us, dear Lord, where we'll listen. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And we'll give you the glory. And Lord, if there's anything in me, any thought, deed, or idle word, or anything in me, and Lord, I pray that's the prayer of every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room, that Lord, this may be a life-changing moment, not only in worship, but in your word today. Lord, may we have come today to receive something and that it'll be planted in our heart and take root and change our lives forever. And we'll give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can uh, take your Bibles now and go ahead and be turning to John, the Gospel of John chapter 4. Gospel of John chapter 4. You know, this time of the year is, is about giving. And I carry in my Bible a $2 bill from Zimbabwe that a woman gave me one time when I was in her village talking to them. I had spent a week preaching the gospel, talking to, to this village about Christ. And, and toward the end of it, she knew that the Mufundus, and that's the word for pastor, uh, she knew that I loved a good cold Coke, and they had bottled Cokes, and uh, that I loved um, these little lemon cookies. And so uh, when I got ready to leave that village at the end of that meeting, the time we'd spent there, she went back there, she fumbled around. It took her a long time in this little mud, roof, uh, mud you know, thatched roof hut. But she had a little cabinet over there and she shuffled around in it and she pulled out this dirty, filthy looking $2 bill. And, and she said, I want to give this to you for coming and telling the people here in this village about Jesus. And I'll never forget, I knew the sacrifice of that at that time, and, and I was getting ready to say, I cannot take that, I can't receive that, when old Mufundis Jaina, this old pastor, looked, and he nodded his head as if to warn me, do not reject that gift. And I took that gift, and I, I didn't use it. I, I, I put it away, tucked it away in my, in my wallet, and it's been there ever since. I remember another time when I was uh, in high school, the bun coffee makers had just come out. Coffee makers were just beginning to come out. I know I'm old, 
but this was probably the early 70s. They'd come out with these coffee makers. You just pour the water in, and, and man, it'd make coffee in, in just a few minutes. And my parents loved coffee, so I, 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 I took some extra hours unloading ice cream out of an ice cream truck in order to uh, make the money to give them that coffee maker. And I was so excited that Christmas. It made no difference what I was getting. All I was excited about was that box wrapped up under that tree because I'd been sacrificing and saving to give my parents a coffee maker. And man, that was a, that was a great day. I remember another time, and I've shared this with our senior adults, my grandmother, you know I've described her hands were all twisted and, and her arms were like this. She was bent over double. She walked around like this. She didn't really walk. She just kind of shuffled around. And My grandmother uh, one year got a sale on peach-colored knitting um, thread and uh, crocheting thread, and, and I don't know if it was knitted or crocheted, but anyway, my grandmother made me and my cousins, us guys, these peach-colored knit caps. And, um, and it was so funny. She was all excited about that. And we weren't about to hurt her feelings. So here we were, all us big strapping, you know, high school-age kids with them peach caps running around the house, out in the yard playing ball, looking at each other, kind of laughing. But uh, I tell you what, my grandmother put a lot of love a lot of attention, and I know a lot of prayer. In fact, a lot of times she would pray when she was doing something like that. So this is about this is about Christmas. It's about giving, and whether we're giving a gift or whether we're receiving a gift, it's it's an exciting time. And you know, I begin to I begin this week to kind of look at uh, you know what Christ would have me to preach uh, th- th- this day and. I have to be honest with you, I felt God moving in a different direction. In fact, I begin to think about, my thought began to turn, did Jesus ever even use the word gift? Now, when he told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave, but did he ever use this word gift? It's doreon in the, doreon in the Greek, and it's this picture of free gift. So I got to looking at that. I don't know, I believe it was from the Holy Spirit. And, and as I began to research that, I found a place where Jesus, listen to this, refers to himself as a gift. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we're going to pick up at verse 1. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, because I want you to think about this for a moment. Sheila and I, a lot of times when we met and we dated, and it's been, uh, we'll celebrate, let me see, is it 37 or 36 years? Huh? 36 years, 36 years. We've known each other about 40 years now. Wow, man. Oh, that's old. <laughs> Whew. But anyway, we've known each other a long time. And a lot of times what Sheila and I will say to each other, we'll say, you know, we'll, we'll refer to each other as our gift from God. The Africans in the Shona language, Chipo Chamwadi. I always thought that was an interesting way to say gift of God. Chipo Chamwadi was, that, that's translated gift from God. And, and, and so Sheila and I, we'll look at each other sometimes, refer to ourselves as that way. Today I teared up my Sunday school class and I looked at the men in that class, uh, Chris and Corey, Daniel and Alan, and I said, and I had tears in my eyes, I said, men, I see you as a gift from God to this congregation, to this church, and to my life. But did Jesus ever use that kind of terminology? Did he ever personally say, I'm a gift? So I want you to look, John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, the Pharisees 
heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me, to, uh, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew, do you see it? Do you see it? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you better than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will end him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water at this well. Here's where we drop the ball when we share our faith. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you've had no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now living with is not your husband. What you've just said is, is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jew. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that that the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain all of this, everything to us. Heaven stood at attention now. They leaned over the banisters because these next words, look this way, he had never said this before. 
he says this information to what accounts to a harlot in the city. This is where he says it the first time. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray again. Lord, we pray, dear Lord, that you would open up our eyes. Let us see what you're trying to say here and touch our hearts in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to give you three quick points. And the first one is this, is Jesus is breaking the barrier. In fact, if you go back and you look at verses 1 through 3, it said that Jesus had been in Judea. His popularity was growing. And the Bible says that his disciples were baptizing more than John's disciples, which is not unusual because John had already said it. John had told his disciples when they came to him and gave him that information. John said, listen, I must decrease, he must increase. So in other words, John was being successful. Now, Jesus is leaving Judea and he's going back to Galilee, and as he's making this journey, a Jew, when a Jew came to a point that they faced a real obstacle. In other words, they had to decide whether they would go through Samaria or go around it. You see, because when Solomon died in 722 BC, well, back in the 900 plus, somewhere, 900 BC, when Solomon died, the kingdom was split between his two sons. They split the kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. It was made up of ten tribes. The southern kingdom was called Judah. It was made up of two tribes. Now in Assyria, when they became a world power, they came in and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722, they took those Israelites, those Jews in the northern kingdom, and they carried the vast majority of them into captivity. This is in the Old Testament. Now, they left a handful of Jews there. They just took the brightest and the best. That was what Nebuchadnezzar would do with the Babylonians when he took the southern kingdom. And when they did that, they left a handful of of, of Jews that were left in, in that area. And what happened was those Jews began to be invaded by pagan, idolatrous kind of people. And before long, those Jews began to intermarry with those pagan idolaters And over a period of time, the messianic line, the blood of a Jew, had been compromised. Is everybody with me so far? Say amen. Now, what happened was there developed a little bit of a prejudice between the Jew toward the Samaritan. It wasn't a little bit, it was a great deal. And an Orthodox Jew, a Jew would make this decision. He would simply say, I am not about to go through that part of town. I'm not about to go through that area. I'm not going to go through that area. I'm going to go around it. Let me ask you something. Do we do that today? Yes. And so here were these Jews, and and to tell you how the hatred developed and it kind of gelled, if you go back and you read a book like Nehemiah, you remember Nehemiah when he was serving under that Persian king and and eventually he was allowed to go back and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem? He had some some men, one man by the name of Sanballat, another by the name of Tobiah. Those men were Samaritans that just made Nehemiah's work that much more difficult. So there was a lot of, there was a real barrier here. A Jew would do whatever he could because he just simply wouldn't go through Samaria. Listen, he would cross the Jordan, he'd go through Perea, he would go back up through the north, he would take the eastern, I mean the western route, he would do whatever he had to do, but he wouldn't go around there. Now John tells us that Jesus said, I must, and I like the King James here, I must needs, I've got to go through 
I've got to go through Samaria. So number one, we've got breaking the barrier. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Some of us need to break some of our barriers. Yesterday, Friday, Sheila and I went down. We had to tow my little Civic back, and I'm hoping Dr. Rogers, Dr. Eric Rogers can, uh, can save it. It's, it's pretty sick. But anyway, we went down, to, we had to drive down to Pensacola. We spent Friday night. I had to get a, uh, a tow dolly and at U-Haul. And man, folks, listen, I went all over Pensacola. I went to three U-Haul places trying to get everything set up to try to tow that vehicle back. And to be honest with you, there was one point that literally at 58 years old, I just wanted to cry. But on my way back, after going to three U-Haul places and meeting people and interacting with people, God began to remind me of something. Son, I'm trying to get you out of your routine so that you can be salt, light, and yeast in a lot of places. Because I can't tell you the number of relationships, encounters, and people I met. Is God trying to get you this next year in 2014 to break some barriers and to step out and get out of your normal routine? So here we have Jesus. He is breaking a deep barrier here between a Jew and a Samaritan. Secondly, he's not only breaking the barrier, he's breaking the broken. In verse, in, 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 it says in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. He must, in the King James again, he must needs go through Samaria. This wasn't a matter of logistics. This was a matter of being sensitive to God's Holy Spirit. This was God's Holy Spirit. This was the Spirit of God perhaps counseling Jesus and saying, you've got it. There's a law, listen, there's a lost sheep, there's a lost city, these people need Christ. Now, let me say something here, and this is important for you to hear me. We've got a young lady in this church that has been praying, has been walking, has been doing a lot of things because she has a burden for an area of this city in West Jackson. She is uh, she and her family, but especially her, have constantly come up to me and said, Brother Jeff, I believe that God wants us to do something. She's had dreams about it. And I trust this young lady because the reason I trust her is because what she's saying to me is exactly what I've felt impressed on my heart for several years now. I believe that it is God's will for us to go into the inner city of Jackson to go into a particular area and take the gospel. There's a church, it's abandoned, it's run down, some windows are broke out. I believe it may be God's will for us to go in there and to plant a mission church back in the inner city. Now you may say, well, wait a minute, we're weak, we don't have much money, we don't even have a lot of people. How in the world could we possibly do something like that? Paul said God chooses the weak, to confound the mighty. God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. Let me tell you why God works that way. God works that way because if Pine Lake did it, chances are, and I love Pine Lake, but if Pine Lake, Broadmoor, Crossgates, and one of them did it, people go, well, my goodness, they got a lot of muckety-mucks out there. Boy, they got some high-powered people. Those people, they can get things done and shake things up, but it would be like God to put it on the heart of a little girl named Betsy Ainsworth, put it on the heart of a pastor, put it on the heart of an inner city church like ours in South Jackson to do what would con many would consider to be the impossible. Why? Because Jesus says we need to not only break barriers, there are times that we have to go where the broken are. You see, he was, he was going where the broken was. Paul, John paints this narrative here. He, he paints it like a picture. He says that Jesus must needs go through 
Samaria. We, we see as John begins to unfold this, he said that, that, that Jesus is tired. He uses a word there in the Greek, which is the idea of being weary or exhausted or absolutely totally spent. Let me tell you what he had done. He had just walked 20 miles pretty much uphill. He had been walking, hiking 20 miles up and down. Now, 20 miles is not nothing to sneeze at here. So it would make sense that Jesus here is exhausted. So John begins to paint this picture. And I love this. The disciples were Baptists. Did you know that? All of them were Baptists. Because where are the disciples? Where have they gone? They've gone to get lunch. And see, they're good Baptists because they're trying to beat the Methodists to the cafeteria. So they're trying to get there early. So these disciples are Baptists. Now, all of a sudden we have Jesus. He's there at the well. He's there at Sychar, Jacob's well. And as he's seated there, he's absolutely sweating and exhausted. We see the humanity of Christ. When all of a sudden a woman comes up, and the Bible says uh, she comes up to draw water. You know, one one thing about the cultures of the world in Zimbabwe, I, I would watch these women every single day getting up early in the morning or late in the evening, they go out and they draw water. And, and it's an interesting thing. They would have these big old plastic buckets, on, wherever they got them, I don't know, and they would fill these buckets full with water, and then they would take that bucket and they would set it on their head. Now, we're talking about one of these big five-gallon buckets. Do you know how much that weighs? And I remember one time out in a village where they would train the younger girls and they would take a young girl and they would give her a small bucket or a plastic pail or something. And you'd watch them as they'd put that little pail up there and they'd try to balance it and they'd be walking along there. In fact, sometimes, and I remember on occasions where they would challenge me because I'd be laughing at them. They'd say, well, Mafundis, uh, you know, you come here and you try it. And, And I can remember one time I couldn't even lift the bucket. And I was a pretty healthy guy back then. Listen, I was struggling to get the bucket off the ground, let alone set that thing on my head. So this woman is going to draw water, and and just like so many cultures of the world, it's something that a woman does. But there's some things to note here because they're interesting. Number one is the distance from the town. According to this geographical area, there were other springs, other places to draw water a lot closer This is at least a mile, maybe a mile plus away. This woman is drawing. Why doesn't she go to a closer well? Number two, it's the time of day. She's there at noon. Women just didn't go at noon in the heat of the day to draw water. They would go in the morning or they'd go late in the evening. More often in this culture, they would go late in the evening. But she's at at noontime. And and, and so we we put these two things together and we begin to realize this woman is trying to dodge others. She's trying to dodge other women. It was noon. It was a safe time to go. She, she probably thought to herself, there'll, there'll be nobody else there and, and, and nobody will see me because this woman is in the National Enquirer. She's on the front cover. She's been married five times. She's, she's, she's living with a man in a live-in relationship. And so nothing good about her life at all. This woman, in fact, I wrote this down, this woman was most likely alienated, ostracized, a loner, isolated, separated, the product of failed relationships. Her lifestyle had driven away those who loved her. Did you hear that? Her lifestyle had driven away those who once loved her. 
She had discovered how to survive on her own and when to go to the well and when not to. Now put your spiritual antennas up here because this is critical. Her need, her thirst, her need for water is what forced her to go where she didn't want to go. There may be some in this room today didn't really want to be here anyway. You see, it's a beautiful picture because I think in some ways this well is reflective and representative. It represents her life. And I believe that Jesus would use it that way because I, I, I just thought to myself, this well is a lot like the things of the world. They never satisfy for long. You've always got to constantly keep going back. It's short-term satisfaction and it never lasts. This woman had to go back to a... She had to constantly go back to the... That's why she'll finally say, give me this water so I don't have to come here. It's a painful place. She admits it. She's here at this well to draw water, but in reality, this need is drawing her to to the failure of her life. She wants to satisfy this craving once and for all so she doesn't have to come back. Listen... Her problem was not in relationships. Her problem was in her soul. There are some people, and you know them as well as I do, their family, their friends, there are people that are trying to satisfy the craving in their soul by alcohol, by drugs, by sex. They're in by one relationship after another. They're by a new job, a new house, a new car. They're trying to get anything and everything. Listen, because there's some craving deep down in their soul and they're looking everywhere for every possibility. Their body tries to fill it with flesh, endless relationships. She probably thought, if listen, how many people people make this statement, if I could just find the right man or the right woman, then my problems would be fixed. (laughs) Let me laugh at you for a moment. I've been counseling, pastoring for 35 years. I have yet to see a man or a woman fix their problems with marriage. More often than not, like James Dobson said, it's like two mighty rivers coming together and for about the first five years they're just rolling and turbulent and so difficult as two people are trying to learn each other and discover all those idiosyncrasies. I see Stan back there getting real nervous right now. You see, she thought if I could just find the right person, if I could just get married, that would solve a lot of my problems. Some people look at it as their mind. If I could just... And she does that. Look at verse 11 and 12. She, she, she says, sir, you, you don't have anything to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well, drank from it himself, his sons and his fox and his herds? You know, this woman, I believe when she brings up her lineage, some people think if I can just figure out where I've come from and settle some things in my past and fix my past and fix some past relationships and, 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 and you know, everybody now, ancestry, everybody's looking to figure out who their ancestors are. The Bible settles that. Look, I can go back and find, I can tell you what kind of ancestors I've had and they're not too good. 
This woman probably thought, well, if I could just, if I could, here's my lineage. In verse 19 and 20, she speaks to religion. She, she turns the conversation. Jesus says, she's talking to the Lord. She said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she begins to talk about, about religion. Her, her, her spirit is empty and it's void. There's a God-shaped hole in her life. And she's looking everywhere trying to fill it with something. I love what Jesus does in verse 13 and 14. Do you see it? In verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water shall be thirsty again. I think what Jesus was making clear, this woman, he was saying to this woman, this water is representative of your life. This water is representative of the endless number of relationships that you've been in and out of, short-term fixes, quick fixes, super glue. They give you a buzz. They give you, they fizz for a little bit, and then, then, then it's over. What Jesus was saying to her was something deeper. This won't satisfy. The five relationships that you've been in and out of, the man you're living with now, none of that will satisfy you. You're bankrupt, cash for title. And it's not a cash for title for your car, it's for your life. You've given up on marriage and now you're shacking up. I wrote this down, a quote Jesus was saying, your relationship with God is much like your relationship with men. Religion without relationship is the attempt to shack up with God. No commitment, no responsibilities, no covenant, no responsibilities, no uh, uh, come and go when I want is how she lived her life. She wanted to do with God like she did with men. Prayer life to her was the equivalent of climbing up into God's lap as if he was some kind of divine Santa Claus and letting him know what she wanted. She, in essence, wanted to shack up with God. But then thirdly and finally, breaking the behavior. Look at verse 16. It's a strange thing here. And I'll be honest with you. I was telling my Sunday school class, this passage of Scripture I seldom have ever preached, and I really don't even enjoy it. It wasn't one of my favorites. And I I have to be honest here. And this past week, when I began to look at Jesus referring to himself as a gift, and I found this passage, I was going, Oh, Lord, I wish you'd have used it somewhere else. This is such a long narrative. John takes so long to break it down, expand it out. Lord, you know, you're kind of like a kid. I don't want to do it. <laughs> but watch what Jesus does because he's breaking the behavior. In verse 16, you know, here's this woman in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's wants something, she, wants, she wants something that will satisfy In verse 16, Jesus, he told her, go call your husband and come back to me. That's what we don't say to people. A lot of times we do fine as we talk to people about Christ. And let let me encourage you to do something in 2014. Initiate more conversations with more people. But when you initiate those conversations, be sensitive to God's Holy Spirit as God begins to do some things in order for you to understand their heart. Here you have Jesus speaking to this woman. In the average church today, when we get to this point, verse 16, we just skip over this. 
The average church today wants to be, we want, the average church today wants to host Las Vegas weddings where people can just basically make a quick commitment to Christ, enter into a quick covenant, and nothing is ever dealt with about their life. Listen, you can never, I can never, no one can come to Christ apart from repentance. This is why so many churches have masses of of, of members but don't even know where they are. Because people simply see Jesus or they see God as just something that's quick and easy. And and, and, And so when he goes to verse 16... To me, it was critical. I wrote this down. The danger is, is, is if we avoid verse 16, we have false converts. Churches who want to evangelize, and you can't do it either, and I can't, evangelize based on gifts rather than repentance. This woman, woman wanted blessings without brokenness. There's a sin problem. There's an elephant in the room. She's been married five times, and she's living in adultery. Jesus said, go get your husband. He's bringing this woman to the point of conviction in order to bring her to the point of receiving Christ. We want to tell people about Jesus. We want people to enter into a relationship with God without literally entering into a covenant agreement, into the commitment that comes with that relationship. Listen to Jesus when people followed him or they sought to follow him. You know what he'd say? It was as if he were almost trying to talk them out of it. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the son of the man has nowhere to lay his head. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Rich man, young man came to him and said, listen, you go back and sell all that you have. And he went away sorrowful. Zacchaeus, come down, I'm eating at your house today. You endlessly see Jesus always bringing people to the point of conviction. Zacchaeus said, Lord, I realize what kind of man I am and I'm going to restore everyone that I've robbed as a tax collector. I'm going to restore it four times over. Even the adulterous woman, where you find Jesus dealing with the adulterous woman. The Bible says, and I love there's a picture a picture of, uh, from the Passion of Christ where, where this adulterous woman is laying with her face at the feet of Jesus. It's just the feet, the sandal feet of Christ and this woman with her face at his feet and she's wrapped around his ankles. And I thought to myself, what a beautiful picture of brokenness and humility as a man or a woman comes face to face with their sin. I'm a sinner, God. Jesus wanted this woman to surrender. I was telling my Sunday school class, I feel sorry for people who don't do this. Because in some ways, when I left my little grandson sightless, one of the last things that he did was he lifted up his hands and he wanted his pawpaw to pick him up. It's a sign of love. But it's also a sign of surrender. I give up. That's what Mary was doing. This passage we talked about in Luke chapter 2. When Mary, she said, I don't understand. Shekinah glory overshadowing, coming over me, impregnating me. And I've never even been with a man. That doesn't make a bit of sense, but I surrender. Alan Tisdale said it well in our Sunday school. He said, what could God do if more men and women just simply said, God... I don't know how you're going to do it. Doesn't make any sense to me. I surrender, Lord, whatever you want to do with me. I'm your servant. That's what Mary said. Isn't that what Betsy Ainsworth is saying for a whole church? 
We surrender. We don't know how you're going to do it. We don't know how you'll provide. But Lord, if this is what you want us to do, we surrender. We're going to be obedient. We're going to obey the Great Commission. And we're going to do, God, what you've called us to do. Let me tell you what some of the people think in this room. We can't afford it. We can't do it. And you know why? Because you're not here. You're, this is you. Hey, no, this ain't you. Bad grammar, but this is you. And for those on the website, I got my hands crossed right now and a stern look on my face. And I can tell you what you're going to do. Some of you are packing it away for Junior to spend it on a Tahoe or an expedition as soon as you die. And if you don't think they're going to do that, <laughs> been doing that for 35 years and standing at a lot of gravesides, standing in a lot of funeral homes. And they couldn't, get them, they couldn't wait to get you six feet under so they could get their money and do what they want to with it. Might want to include God in your inheritance. 35 years of ministry, I can count on one hand the number of people that have included God in their inheritance. Wow, that's sad. You see, Jesus just summed up this woman. He, 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 said, he brings her to conviction. He brings her to brokenness because... She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And that's the key to repentance. That's the key to conviction is when you and I are honest before the Lord. Sin must be repented of. There is no salvation apart from repentance. And if you're making a commitment this year that you want to, if you're saying to the Lord, Lord, use me this year. I want to take the gospel. I want to personally invade and interact with people and perhaps see people come to Christ. My friend, you will do an injustice to us all if you don't follow Jesus' example in John 4. He deals with sin in order to bring people to conviction so that they repent of their sin and they repent and come to Christ. Will you be popular? Absolutely not. Everybody look this way. And neither is Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty and neither is Tim Tebow. If you follow Jesus' example here, I can promise you this much, you won't be, you won't be very popular. But you'll be right. Let's stand. Take just a moment with heads bowed and with eyes closed. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you and Lord, we thank you, dear Lord, that you speak to our hearts in a passage like this and you remind us, dear Lord, that you've called us to break the barriers, whether they be race, whether they be ethnic, whatever they may be, dear Lord, you've called us to go into those difficult places and to take the gospel and to be faithful. Lord, you've, you've simply said to us to go. You've not always told us to figure out every detail as to the logistics. Just go. I'll take care of that. So Lord, I pray today, first of all, that our hearts would be sensitive to how you lead us. Dear Lord, break us out of those routines and that daily uh, just going through the routines that we find ourselves in. 
dear Lord, may we see sometimes the interruption of a flat tire, a broke down car, something that goes wrong at home or in the office or some little errand that we have to run that we didn't plan on. May we see it as a divine opportunity where we just simply realize that God, you have put me in this position. You have placed me here. Now, God, may I be sensitive to what you're saying and what you want to do with me. Lord, I pray, dear Lord, because yesterday, sitting in, a, in my third U-Haul place and trying to get business taken care of, a man came in to pay the, to pay the storage fee of a family that had been broken down, who all of their stuff was in a little storage bin there at the U-Haul. That man turned out to be a pastor. As I listened to his heart and me sitting over there quietly and Then, dear Lord, as I entered into a conversation, he said, you know, this is strange. We're trying to do more work around the homeless. We really don't know what to do because some of our people, though Methodist, dear friend, but a Methodist, it doesn't matter, Methodist or Baptist, barriers, these mean nothing to you, God. This Methodist pastor said, could I send a lady to your church to learn from you, to learn from your people? And then, Father, as I sat there still waiting and that man had left, all of a sudden that man came in. That preacher had already told me he was a hard-working man but broke down things and not worked out. He had lost his job. Everything that he had was in a storage bin at Christmas. He seemed like such a nice man as he asked He had already paid the rest of it. He said, could I go in there and look? And Lord, I I say all that to say this, dear Lord. It was like you were showing me, son, it's not about your car. It's not about breaking down. It's not about trying to run from one U-Haul place to the next. It's because I have you on a divine assignment, a mission. And son, if you don't go, who will? I needed to get you to that Methodist preacher. And that's the only way I could do it. May we in this room see 2014 as divine opportunities. May we quit griping and complaining because things don't go our way, because we're inconvenienced, because we wait in a fast food line for for two minutes longer than we ought to. May we realize that the people around us may be desperately struggling in their own personal lives and maybe a smile, maybe a refreshing look from our face may be all the encouragement that they need. May we be interrupted. May we break down barriers. And God, when you break the broken through us, may you use us to speak to their hearts and lives. May we be brave enough to confront the sin that may be in somebody we love's life. God, use us for the kingdom. And Father, I pray, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, if there's one here that doesn't know you, that even this day, right now, in this service, just three days before Christmas, that someone would pray and invite Christ to come into their heart by simply recognizing their sin, repenting of it, coming face to face with it and repenting of it and receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, would you speak to us in this invitation and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.